Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 19 on March 17th, 2017. Happy St. Patrick's Day! Wearing green and coming to you out of the Low Technology Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin, I'll be talking about clothing and how our decisions about it matter. Thanks for joining us. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, research updates, and event calendar, and our DIY feature. This week, I'm going to briefly touch on the Broad Fork, a tool that will save your back and still turn over your garden beds. It was our DIY feature last week. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, now at a new address, lowtechinstitute.org. There, you can find both of our podcasts, our blog, and other features. So today we're talking about clothing, and I generally find that there are two types of people. Fashionistas, and for the sake of parallel construction, functionistas. Obviously, we have some functionistas who like to look good, and some fashionistas who like well-made, long-lasting clothes. But for the sake of argument, let's explore these two points of view. And for the record... I am a functionista, but I live with somebody who would lean harder to the fashionista end of the spectrum if left to her own devices. I'll do my best to be a little more objective than I would be just speaking for myself. Fashionistas have an intrinsic enjoyment of clothing, or at least I gather. Uh, Clothing hits four of our five senses. Cloth is tactile. Many textiles have distinct smells. Think of wool. Colors and patterns strike the eye, and the rustle of skirts are the stuff of, you know, those romantic novels that you see at the checkout. Uh, Not to mention the episode of Seinfeld where George buys a corduroy suit that swishes when he walks and it costs him a job. Uh, Clothing is the easiest part of your external appearance to change drastically. Now, growing up, we learned not to judge somebody based on how they dress. Now, with the caveat that some people have little control over their clothing due to financial constraints or dress codes... I think most adults telegraph much about themselves by how they choose to dress. The brands, cuts, colors, and their combinations can indicate class and status, as well as individuality. I can see the appeal of deciding on a new look each day, and there are social conventions that dictate minimum standards for different situations. My partner and I just discussed what the dress code was for my cousin's upcoming wedding, and we tempered the formality of the wedding occasion with the more informal nature of the ceremony and reception venue. If I put on my anthropologist hat for a minute, and hey, I might as well get some use out of my degree, right? Uh, I can tell you that dressing in a socially acceptable way signals your knowledge of and adherence to norms. If you want to blend in, you have to dress the part. If you want to stand out, go against what is expected. But even those who push the fashion envelope do so in a socially acceptable way, Otherwise, it's labeled as deviance. On the other hand, functionistas may enjoy clothing, but see them more as utilitarian necessities than extensions of their personality. Clothing is there to serve a purpose, whether it is keeping us warm, protecting us from the elements, or keeping parts of our bodies covered. And this is a spectrum, and even situational. For example, most of us care less about what our paint clothes look like, and so we are all functionistas to some extent. NPR's Planet Money did a great series on creating a t-shirt a year or so ago. I'll put a link to the series in this week's podcast page. They have visuals, data, and nice videos illustrating what I'm going to summarize here with a few additional comments. Their goal was to trace the origin, manufacture, and use of an ordinary t-shirt. 
They started on a cotton farm in Mississippi, one that uses conventional machinery, GMO seeds, pesticides, and fertilizers. And I say GMO seeds and conventional, and many of us probably don't know that 90% of U.S. cotton is genetically modified. In one point of view, this can be seen as a positive thing because the GMO uh, modification of cotton is actually to reduce the amount of pesticides needed because the cotton itself produces a type of pesticide to keep away unwanted um, attacking insects. And also this isn't a food crop so there's less uproar about the GMO nature of cotton. Right now the current list of approved GMOs in the United States are uh, 20 varieties of corn, oilseed like a rape or canola, uh, cotton, tomato, potatoes, soybeans, sugar beets, squash, cantaloupe, rice, flax, radicchio, papaya, alfalfa, and wheat are currently approved with certain GMO modifications in the United States. And so sometimes at the grocery store I see GMO-free peanuts, for example, where there are no approved GMO peanuts in the United States, so all peanuts should be GMO-free. But again, I digress. This uh, hyper-industrialization of cotton growing has tripled the amount of cotton produced per acre. And in addition, they use fewer and fewer people as machines and automation take over the planting, harvesting, and processing. Cotton is then shipped out to less developed countries. It is spun into threads called yarn in the biz, even though it's very small and thin, like what we would normally call a thread in normal speech. And these threads are woven into fabric before being washed and dyed. All of this is done by machines, with humans only shepherding the cotton through the process. That fabric is shipped out to countries where labor costs are cheaper, like Bangladesh, Colombia, and others. At NPR, they compared and contrasted workers from these countries. In Bangladesh, the typical worker, one of four million garment workers in that country, works six days a week for about $80 a month. She's done this, or at least the person they profile has done this, since she was 16 years old. Many garment workers are from small villages, and the reason that there's an influx of, especially women from small villages, is that women in this society require a dowry to get married, and this causes financial hardships on their families. These individuals seek unskilled work in the larger cities, and often this is in the garment factories. This is a sea change in their social lives, very different from generations past. In Colombia, things are a bit different, as a single worker makes four times what a Bangladeshi garment worker makes. There's a trade-off, though, as consumers in the most advanced countries are used to dirt-cheap garments. Business interests are worried about raised wages, which would cause the prices to rise as well. Once produced, garments are packed into shipping containers, put on a slow boat, and moved to their destination by water. It's cheap and really efficient, at least energetically, because large ships can move so much at once. It only adds seven cents to the cost of a shirt to move it from Colombia to the United States. Compare that to 60 cents for the cotton, 90 cents for the design on the shirt, and up to $2.70 to ship it from the warehouse in the United States to the consumer. This little documentary series stresses the people behind the shirt, from plant engineers to farmers to ship captains, garment workers, and many more. And that's where they stop. It is really a good starting point for the general public to get a good behind-the-scenes view of an industry that gives us so many cheap clothes. The team at NPR used a t-shirt, which is the ubiquitous giveaway item. T-shirts are so cheap and plentiful, they're given away when you open a bank account, or when you go to a baseball game, or any time that people are giving things away, there's often a t-shirt involved. But many of these same paths are responsible for much of our clothing. Although synthetics are spun in factories from chemicals instead of being grown in a field, and animal fibers are sheared from animals, obviously, much of the rest of the production is 
a similar chain of events. What I wish they would have done is gone into a greater discussion of two things, the use of fossil fuels and the buy cheap throwaway culture that this type of production supports. Let's tackle fossil fuels first as this is the crux of much of what we focus on at the Institute, namely getting it out of our supply chain. Garments as we know them could not exist without fossil fuels. From the tractors and fertilizers that grow and harvest the cotton to the factories that run on coal, natural gas and other fuels spinning the fiber and fabric, it's all fossil fuel dependent. Then there's the production factories and global shipping delivery. It's all made possible with fossil fuels and when they run out, only some of these practices can be continued using renewable fuel sources. We're going to have to retrofit or adapt significantly to continue this type of production or, as you might have guessed, come up with a new system that doesn't require so much travel. I try to avoid preaching, but it gets hard not to come off as scolding when I talk about the cheap cost of clothing, the size of our wardrobes, and the easy way we tend to discard our clothing. Remember reading books like Little House on the Prairie or others from the pre-industrial age? Everyone had a set of work clothes and a set of nice clothes that were worn to church on Sunday in the largely Christian world of earlier English writing. I'm not saying we need to go back to that, but there is something to the idea of using resources more fully. During the Great Depression and those world wars at the beginning of the last century, the phrase mend and make do was a call to do exactly that. If something was at all functional, fix it rather than dispose of it because a new one might not be available. After the second of the world wars, as economies boomed, people had enough of this austere type of living. With manufacturing on the rise and global trade growing, commodities became increasingly abundant and cheap. This encouraged an expansion of the American wardrobe, as well as houses full of tons of cheaply made goods. The more you have of something, the easier it is to toss out mildly defective or worn items. Since then, we have kept downward pressure on commodities, and this disposable mentality became entrenched as generations and generations of people grew up in this throwaway culture where things were easily obtained and easily discarded. The anthropologist in me wants to come out again and points to lots of social pressures that people put on one another. We must wear current fashions or we seem out of touch or unable to afford the newest trends. This is especially sharp in middle and high school where social status and cliques tend to seem more important than other things. And sometimes this social pressure that was put on us during these formative years extends into our adulthood. The next time you're out and you see somebody who is dressed in a, mm, a way that you might otherwise make a comment about their clothing, or think about the social engineering that's gone on, where it's so easy for us to think, hey, why don't they just throw away those old clothes and get new ones? Tossing away out-of-date clothing or clothing that could be mended is also a form of conspicuous consumption, which is the idea that I want to show you how rich I am by the expensive stuff that I can throw away and waste. I remember living in former East Germany and my host parents admonished me for throwing out a Rubik's Cube instead of trying to fix it when it broke. They told me all about how being able to fix broken items was a point of pride, damals, that is, before the fall of the wall. My host grandmother was fastidious about repairing all of my carefully distressed American teenager clothing. Um, growing up in the 90s, it wasn't uncommon to have small tears or worn out patches on your clothes that... You know, that was seen as cool, that distressed look. Well, <laughs> one day I came home and my host grandmother had repaired all of my clothes, all of my beautifully worn out jeans and all those things. All had patches and were all fixed up. 
and she was so happy to have done that for me. And, you know, I couldn't help but thank her, of course, <laughs> thinking to myself, oh, my clothes, I had them just the way I wanted them. She came from a time when you didn't waste uh, or also go out of the house with distressed clothing that was seen as uh, a bit of a faux pas. The bottom line is that our current clothing consumption habits cannot be sustained indefinitely. Because they are a world away, it's easy not to think about the garment workers in their lives. But next time you're amazed at some good clothing deal, stop just for a minute and think about how and why companies can offer you clothing for so cheap. It's on the backs of cheap transportation industry made artificially cheap by fossil fuels and the labor of some of the world's poorest paid workers. Okay, okay, enough complaining. Uh, what's the solution then? Uh, well, in the short term, that is, within our current economic system, we should one, buy less clothing, but buy smarter, and two, work our wardrobes down to a reasonable size by mending and making do before we replace things. First, buying less clothing is straightforward. Some folks shop for fun, but I'd really encourage you to find some form of fun that doesn't contribute to a system we've been talking about today, as many of the garment workers aren't having fun sewing your cheap clothes. Instead, shop for clothing when you need it. It takes some time to differentiate needs-based and wants-based purchasing, and sometimes there is overlap, for sure. For example, when I've been wearing shoes for years and they're completely worn out and falling apart and can no longer be repaired, I am excited about replacing them and getting a new pair of shoes, but it's when my wants overlap with my needs that I actually go out and replace them. So take a little time to think about it before you go out shopping to replace something. One trick I use is to decide on a purchase and then wait a week and see if I still feel the need to buy that item one week later. If I do, then usually it's a better thought out purchase. You'd be surprised how much difference a week makes in your perspective of what's necessary. Also, buying smart doesn't mean shopping for the cheapest or best deal. For most of us, this means buying more expensive clothing that will last longer. In the end, though, isn't that much more expensive? If you buy one good shirt that lasts you for five years for $50, isn't that the same price as buying cheaper, poorer quality shirts that you have to replace each year for $10? But in the higher quality shirt scenario, you're not asking poorly paid workers or the garment infrastructure to manufacture five shirts, only one. So in the end, you want to buy fewer items, but buy better items. So you can actually feel like you're splurging a little bit to buy better quality items. You're more likely to take care of these more expensive items too, which will prolong your life. The one difficulty, of course, is buying something that is fashion neutral enough that it's going to look good today and it's going to look good in five years. We all know that the height of jeans, waists, and the tightness of the leg and all of these different things change every couple of years, it seems. So it's hard to buy something that's going to look good in five years because we don't know what the trend is going to be. We have to get a little bit outside of this quick changing fashion idea because that is really largely buoyed up by this fossil fuel driven industry. I'm not a very fashionable person, so take my advice for what you want it to be. But I've read uh, by people who talk more about fashion that if you're going to purchase things this way, buy things that are more toned down and less exaggerated in their style. Things that look classically good, right? So if you're looking through uh, pictures from 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, if you see something that looks good from then and you can find it now, chances are it'll still look good in the near future. So that might be one way to go about it. But again, 
I am admittedly not much of a fashion person. And this brings us to point two, whittling down our wardrobes. Treehugger had a good article critiquing minimalist approaches that are becoming popular. Although minimalism in and of itself is generally a good step in the direction of long-term sustainability, if it means you start by throwing out a whole bunch of still useful stuff, then it's just a different type of wasteful. I'll link to that article in today's podcast page, but you can find it under the title, Forget Spark Joy, How About Use It Up? And this is referring to the minimalist approach of if an item you have doesn't spark joy, you should get rid of it. And I think you can see why that is not necessarily the best approach because that is kind of wasteful. Uh, if you have all these things, if it doesn't immediately make you happy, then you should get rid of it. Obviously, there are places you could donate it, but we can all see that that's just perpetuating the consumption cycle that we're kind of worried about here. So instead of getting rid of it, use it up and then get something that does spark joy that's going to last a lot longer. Okay, so what should we do instead? Don't throw out items from your wardrobe until they are used up. Wear that former graphic tee as an undershirt once you get those ketchup stains on it that won't come out. Once that t-shirt is too thin to serve as a shirt, cut it up and make rags for cleaning your bike. Then compost it. Once you're down to a point where you don't have enough underoos to make it between washings, then okay, go buy some new ones to add to your wardrobe, but don't go overboard. Once you're at a happy amount of clothing, only replace what wears out. One way you can do this, and this is something I did about a year ago and have been happy with the results, is to put all of your clothes in another room. On the first day, you have to get the clothes you're going to wear out of that room. You know, socks, underwear, pants, shirt, sweater, whatever. The next day, you have to go back for socks and underwear, but you might not need a new sweater, right? You can use the sweater from the day before. If you can rewear something that you've already pulled out of the room, do it. After a week, you probably have enough clothes to wear for most occasions. Do your laundry, and then rewear the clothes you washed from the first week. You might need to pull another item or two from the room, but after two or three weeks, you'll be left with a pared-down wardrobe that meets your needs. Pack up the rest of the clothes that are left in the other room, and don't throw them out. This is your personal clothing bank that you can go to to replace a t-shirt from your now smaller rotation when it wears out. Once your bank is exhausted, start replacing worn out items with new careful purchases. You might have to repeat this process in the summer and winter for seasonal clothing needs, but that's one way you can go about working with a minimal wardrobe. Some folks give a finite number to their wardrobe. Huffington Post had an item last year about how 35 items is all you really need in the wardrobe. I think this varies from person to person. If you are a uniform at work, you only need a few things for the nights and weekends. If you have a job with more formal dress requirements, like a trial lawyer or something like that, you might need to have a bit of a bigger wardrobe. My results may not be typical because I don't have to dress up for work. My wardrobe is generally two pairs of work pants, one or two nice pairs of pants, two or three work shirts, one or two dress shirts, two or three t-shirts, a sweater, a vest, plus I've got specialized clothing for jogging and other activities, but Recently, one of my nice pairs of pants started to wear through, so they were demoted to work pants. And I went down and pulled out a warehouse pair of nice pants to add to the rotation. Again, do what you like, that's what works for me, but there are ways that we can use our clothing more efficiently what we have. I've also collected some tips from Ready, Set, Green by Hill and O'Neill from 2008 about keeping your clothing going a little longer in an eco-friendly way. 
try washing in cold water, which saves energy, and turn on the extra spin cycle to get as much water out of your clothes as possible, especially if you're going to use the dryer. Better to use the energy to spin as much water out rather than heat the air to heat the clothes. That's much more energy expensive. Avoid synthetic detergents such as surfactants, which are derived from petrochemicals and end up as environmental pollution. Replace your clothing softener with a half a cup of vinegar. Avoid brighteners as they usually come from benzene-derived chemicals. Avoid dry cleaners that use PERC or perchloroethylene, which has been linked to cancer, fertility issues, and skin irritation. If you use a dryer, put it in a warm room to improve its efficiency and keep the filter clean. But it's better if you can just line dry your clothes, which uses no energy at all. So those are some thoughts on short-term survival of the clothing economy. I don't know what will come in the long term, but if fossil fuels are removed from the equation without a great overhaul of our current system first, we're probably going to be doing a lot more mend and make do of what we've produced already as we try to figure out locally available solutions to clothe ourselves. At some point in the future at the Institute, we'd like to do more with weaving, fiber production, knitting, and so on, so stay tuned for that. Now on to our DIY feature. Last week, we had a double feature contribution from Matt Miles, one half of the team at Relux Ranch out in North Carolina. You can find his other writing at The Way Back, that's the-way-back.com, which I'll link to on today's podcast page. At any rate, Matt sent in instructions for how to build and use your own broad fork, which isn't a common tool here, but it should be. It's essentially a really big spading fork with two long handles that lets you use leverage and body weight instead of your back and muscles to aerate growing beds. Now it's pretty common for folks to use a shovel to turn over the top layer of soil to make garden beds. This is slow, back-breaking work. Also, it seems we're learning more about how topsoil supports a microbiome, and when we disturb it by turning it over or compacting it, we disturb the web of biota there that help our plants grow. Instead of flipping the soil, a broad fork aerates it and breaks it up to encourage a healthy substrate. A broad fork consists of a crossbar, say about two feet wide, with spikes that are about eight or nine inches long. Two long handles come straight up from the crossbar so that when you put the spikes in the ground, you can step on the crossbar to drive it in. Then the long handles are used to lever the spikes up and this breaks up the compacted soil. Matt gave us some more in-depth use directions on last week's blog and then a step-by-step -step construction guide to make your own broad fork. Matt possesses skills that I only aspire to, and since I do not know how to weld, I'm going to have to experiment with a wooden broad fork design this spring, so stay tuned for my report on its efficacy. But for now, check out those two posts from Wednesday and Thursday last week. Let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. We've linked to some good stories on our blog today, including another discussion of Eroy, the topic of the last podcast, and his role in the survival of complex societies. We've got two stories about how foods were linked to the fending off of disease, both for Neanderthals and Parisians. My favorite story of the week dovetails with our topic of clothing. The story of Stuff, whom I've linked to before, has put out a new video talking about synthetic fabrics. Now we all know that old soda bottles and other plastics are sometimes recycled into fleece, which is turned into sweatshirts and all kinds of clothing. This seems like a good idea since we have so much plastic floating around anyway. The problem though is that as it ages and is washed, fleece and other synthetics degrade and release little bits of plastic into the water, which is flushed into municipal treatment plants and then pass into the environment. 
a shocking amount of plastic comes off of these fabrics. So visit the podcast page for yet another link, this time to the story of Stuff's page on microfibers. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, dot org. Or you can follow the link in the podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. Well, it's spring and we're getting all geared up for all that entails, planting, uh, making plans for uh, our bee management practice. Uh, You can see that posted on our website. Uh, We've been drawing plans. We're going to make three different types of hives this year and see how the bees take to them, uh, potentially giving them side-by-side comparisons. So we're in the planning stages and uh, hopefully in a couple of weeks I will have news Uh, regarding the Institute's permanent location. Uh, Right now we are uh, working on uh, getting through all the legal hoops that we have to jump through to get into a space permanently. Uh, Hopefully by mid-April I'll have uh, exciting new news about that. For our event calendar this week, if you're in the Madison area on March 20th, you can go to Science on Tap at the Ale Asylum to hear Adina Rizman start a conversation about whether or not we can have clean lakes and ice cream too. That's from 6.30 to 8 p.m. If you have an event you'd like to get on the calendar, get in touch by emailing lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Scully's Reel, off the album Cup of Tea by Slantia. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating. It helps boost our audience reach. You can find more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno, and also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute, again, all one word, at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have your feedback. Thanks, and take care.